Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast, just the usual word of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's get on with it. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been a bumper week for financial crime this week, with big stories on fraud, money laundering, and especially bribery and anti-corruption. However, this week's big news in the UK, the publication by His Majesty's Government of the Economic Crime Plan 2, will be the subject of a podcast special coming up midweek, so check out that. Let's get on with this week's bumper edition. As usual, the links that are mentioned in the podcast can be found in the podcast description. And we'll start this week, as we always do, with sanctions. It's been another quiet week on the sanctions front. A lot of the main work which could be done by the principal actors has broadly been done, while the residual news is merely to focus on those offering military and other forms of support to Russia. And there is also a bit of enforcement action for sanctions which are already in place. We'll start with the United States, where most activity has been this week. In fact, the whole of this week's podcast is littered with news from the U.S. First, the U.S. State Department and the U.S. Department of the Treasury have announced sanctions on the Iranian military procurement network. These have links to Iran's unmanned aerial vehicle program, which have been used to devastating effect across Ukraine by Russia. The sanctions affect four entities and three individuals in, quotes, Iran and Turkey for their involvement in the procurement of equipment, including European origin engines of unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, in support of Iran's UAV and weapons programs. The U.S. Department of the Treasury has also announced further sanctions against Belarus, these sanctions affecting state-owned enterprises, government officials, and Lukashenko's aircraft are in response to Belarus's internal suppression of democracy and, of course, its ongoing support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Links to all the press releases can be found in the podcast description. Away from Russia, but I suppose another one of its allies, namely Syria, it's the U.S. Department of the Treasury again, only this time they're imposing sanctions on the Syrian regime and Lebanese officials involved in illicit drug production, specifically captagon, which is an amphetamine. They're also imposing sanctions because of trafficking of the same. This action was coordinated with the United Kingdom. Detail in the podcast description. And we'll end this week by a small story which comes out of the UK. It's issued a licence under the Russian sanctions regime relating to bond amendments and the restructuring for non-designated persons. You can find the license to read if you want to do that in the podcast description. Now we move on to fraud, where it's been quite a hefty week, and I've learnt a few things that I certainly didn't know before. We'll start this week with food. It's very rare to get a food story on this podcast, let alone two stories. But this week, The Guardian and The Observer newspapers in the United Kingdom have been on it. First, The Observer, which reported in the United Kingdom on Sunday that all UK honey, which was tested by the European Union for authenticity, was found to contain sugar syrup. The UK government said that it would look 
into the findings, the second story was picked up by The Guardian from Farmers Weekly, which is undoubtedly my favourite weekly farm-related periodical. It found that some pork labelled as British was in fact from other countries. The report further suggests that, the U- that a UK food manufacturer, which was unnamed, was selling not only mislabeled food, but at times also rotten meat. Busy week for the Food Standards Agency in the UK then. The rest of this week's fraud news, I suppose, comes principally from the United States. There's quite a bit of it as well. Principally as well. I've used the word principally too often, it's becoming strange. Crypto misdoings were on the agenda. First, the US Securities and Exchange Commission has announced fraud and securities law violations against Justin Sun and three of his companies. The press release in the podcast description provides... The Securities and Exchange Commission today announced charges against crypto asset entrepreneur Justin Sun and three of his wholly owned companies, Tron Foundation Limited, BitTorrent Foundation Limited and Rainberry Inc., formerly BitTorrent, for the unregistered offer and sale of crypto asset securities Tronix and BitTorrent. The SEC also charged Sun and his companies with fraudulently manipulating the secondary market for Tronix through extensive wash trading, which involves the simultaneous or near-simultaneous purchase and sale of a security to make it appear actively traded without an actual change in beneficial ownership, and for orchestrating a scheme to pay celebrities to tout Tronix and BitTorrent without disclosing their compensation. The SEC simultaneously charged the following eight celebrities for illegally touting, um, what was it again, Tronix and BitTorrent and or BitTorrent without disclosing that they were compensated for doing so and the amount of their compensation. These celebrities, and I frankly only heard of one of them, but anyway, this is the list of celebrities. Lindsay Lohan, who's the one I've heard of, Jake Paul, Deandre Cortez Way, otherwise known as Soul Yar Boy, Austin Mahoney, or Mahone, Michelle Mason, otherwise known as Kendra Lust, Miles Parks McCollum, Lil Yachty, Shaffer Smith, Ni Yo, and Aluan Tiam, uh, Akon or Akon or something like that. The second crypto story comes courtesy of the US Department of Justice, which has announced that Michael Allen Stollery, the CEO and founder of Titanium Blockchain Infrastructure Services, Inc., has been sentenced to four years and three months imprisonment for his role in a cryptocurrency fraud scheme involving TBIS's initial coin offering, which raised approximately $21 million from investors in the United States and overseas. The funds were raised through the making of false and misleading statements, which encouraged people to invest. Links to Both stories can be found in the podcast description. I suppose I could end with one story of traditional fraud just to dampen the theme. Frankly, this next story nearly got dead donkeyed, which is, for anybody who loved 90s British comedy, as a reference they'll embrace. But a former law firm's partner has been uh, revealed by the unsealing of an indictment this week as having been charged with false claims in relation to bankruptcy. The individual concerned is someone called John Rosa. The link to the story can be found in the podcast description. 
Now, as if we haven't laid the US stories on thickly enough, let's turn now to bribery and, and corruption. It's been a riot of a week for bribery and anti-corruption stories this week, most of which comes out of the United States. Of course, where else could we start but with the charges faced by ex-CEO of FXT, the collapsed crypto exchange, Sam Bankman-Fried, who, in addition to the fraud charges he already faces over the collapse of FTX, now faces charges of alleged bribery of Chinese government officials under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act 1977, that is a US statute. Bankman-Fried has pleaded not guilty to the bribery charges in a Manhattan court this week. Now, get set for an overload of stories from the US Department of Justice, the DOJ, before a roundup of the bribery and anti-corruption commentary crossing the wires this week. First, the DOJ has announced that it has recovered profits of $53 million from corruption in the Nigerian oil industry. Secondly, the former mayor of Guinabo, Puerto Rico, Angel Perez Otero, has been convicted of taking bribes amounting to thousands of dollars in cash from the owner of a construction company. In exchange, Perez Otero agreed to obtain and retain contracts for the company and ensured that its invoices were paid promptly. Thirdly, an officer in a correctional facility in the U.S. has pleaded guilty to taking bribes for smuggling drugs into a Washington, D.C. jail. All three stories are linked in the podcast description if you'd like more detail. Beyond the U.S. churning out the bribery and anti-corruption stories we, uh, this week, they have also been involved in a number of announcements about the direction of travel and attempts to influence policy by holding an international summit. We'll start this week with Transparency International, which has responded to that U.S. Department of State Summit for Democracy. It's issued a statement, and it called on, quote, leaders to strengthen transnational cooperation and endorse the recommendations of the Cohort on International Cooperation for Anti-Corruption. The links to the statement from Transparency International, the Summit for Democracy, and the 30 Principles for Strengthening Cooperation on Anti-Corruption can all be found in the podcast description. Now, that Summit for Democracy has created a lot of noise this week, so we'll stick with it with news that the remarks that were made at the Summit for Democracy by the Secretary Janet Yellen has, uh, they've been published by the US Department of the Treasury. Frankly, there's nothing surprising in the words. They, they just say the usual things, the sort of things you come to expect now, but this extract provides a flavour of the general theme. Corruption is among the most corrosive of threats to democracy. Corruption erodes democracy and the rule of law. It hinders the business environment. It precludes essential government services from getting to the people who need it. And it exacerbates transnational challenges like migration, organised crime, extremism and instability, threatening our national security. Nothing surprising in that, or frankly in the rest of it. And if you want to read the entire thing, it can be found in the podcast description, along with important comments which are linked in that statement to the commitment of the Summit for Democracy on Beneficial Ownership and the Misuse of Legal Persons, which is a big and, I suppose, recurrent theme. Enjoy them all at your leisure. Now, this week, 
to money laundering again. There's a huge amount of money laundering news this week. So let's make a start with the European Union, where members of the European Parliament have approved stricter rules on anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism. Principally, the new measures close gaps which exist in the current legislative framework. As the press release issued by the European Parliament provides, the package consists of, first, the EU single rulebook regulation with provisions on conducting due diligence on customers, transparency on beneficial owners, and the use of anonymous instruments such as crypto assets and new entities such as crowdfunding platforms. It also includes provisions on so-called golden passports and visas. The text was adopted by 99 votes to 8 and there were 6 abstentions. The sixth anti-money laundering directive contains national provisions on supervision and financial intelligence units as well as on access for competent authorities to necessary and reliable information, for example, on beneficial ownership registers and asset stores stored in free zones. The text of that was adopted by 107 votes to five with zero abstentions. And finally, the regulation establishing the European Anti-Money Laundering Authority, or AMLA, which we've mentioned on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast in the previously, with supervisory and investigative powers to ensure compliance with anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism requirements. The text was adopted by 102 votes to 11 with two abstentions. There will be, for those interested, a plenary in April later this month, where the Parliament can start the negotiations on the AML and CFT package, Links to the press release, which itself contains many other relevant links to enjoy, can be found in the podcast description. Sticking with the EU and crypto assets, this week the European Banking Authority announced a consultation on amendments to guidelines on risk-based AML and CFT supervision to include crypto asset service providers. The consultation closes on the 29th of June 2003. Full details of the consultation, including a virtual public hearing to which anyone can sign up, can be found in the podcast description. To the US now, where the Financial Accountability and Transparency Coalition, or FACT Coalition, and a diverse group of civil society organisations have revealed that they sent a letter earlier this month urging the timely appointment of a permanent director to lead the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, the FinCEN. FinCEN is a body which operates as part of the U.S. Department of the Treasury with the responsibility for U.S. national standard setting on anti-money laundering standards. Link to the fact press release and the letter can be found in the podcast description. We might as well stick for, uh, we'll stick with FinCEN for the next announcement because this week it published its initial beneficial ownership information reporting guidance. Identifying true beneficial ownership is central to anti-money laundering regimes globally, with the UK implementing its response last summer and recently Canada, and there's been a lot across the wires this week about the Canadian Beneficial Ownership Register. So a lot of progress has been made in this area. The link to the FinCEN announcement, as well as the guidance, can be found in the podcast description. The European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the EBRD, in collaboration with the Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists, ACAMS, have launched two scholarship programs to provide anti-money laundering and sanctions compliance training 
to 120 anti-financial crime professionals throughout the southern and eastern Mediterranean regions. Specifically, the scholarships are aimed at Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Morocco, Tunisia, West Bank and Gaza. Link to the EBRD announcement is in the podcast description. And finally, this week on Money Laundering, the big news from the UK is the action taken by the Gambling Commission against three companies under the William Hill Group for failures in anti-money laundering and social responsibility obligations. The William Hill Group, for those of you who don't know, is a gambling organisation and it runs a number of umbrella companies offering gambling services to the public. Well, total fines of £19.2 million were issued against WHG International Limited, which runs WilliamHill.com, that was fined £12.5 million. Mr Green Limited, which runs MrGreen.com, which was fined £3.7 million. And William Hill Organisation Limited, which operates 1,344 gambling premises across Britain, basically the gambling shops that William, throughout the, William Hill has throughout the country. Well, that was fined £3 million. In terms of the anti-money laundering failings, the Gambling Commission identified that the organisations had allowed customers to deposit large amounts without conducting appropriate checks. The example provided in the press release was that one customer was able to spend and lose £70,134 in a month, another to lose £38,000 in five weeks, and another to lose £36,000 in four days. And that was all WHG International Limited. They also allowed customers to, de to deposit large amounts without conducting appropriate checks. One customer deposited £73,535 and lost £14,068 in four months, and that was Mr Green. Not the customer, you understand, but the company. Customers were able to take large amounts of money or were able to stake large amounts of money without being monitored or scrutinised to a high enough standard. The operator failed to request source of funds evidence when one customer staked 1919000 on a single bet, did not obtain documentation from a customer who staked £39,324 and lost £20,360 in 12 days and did not obtain source of funds evidence from a customer who staked £276,942 and lost £24,000. £395 over two months, and that was William Hill Organisation Limited or William Hill Retail. Procedures, policies and controls lacked guidance on appropriate action to take following the results of customer profiling and how its findings should be used to establish the appropriate outcome, and that was both WHG International Limited and Mr Green. Procedures and controls lacked hard stops to prevent further spend and mitigate against money laundering risks before customer risk profiling was completed. And again, those findings were against WHG International and Mr Green. And finally, AML staff training provided insufficient information on how risks, on risks and how to manage those risks. And that was again WHG International Limited and Mr Green. The press release from which much of the commentary I've just taken you through was drawn as well as all three public statements relating to each of the companies concerned, can be found in the podcast description. Now, that's it for Money Laundering. We end 
this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast by doing our usual roundup of cyber news this week. Well, we start with the continuing fallout from the Latitude financial cyber attack and news that the scale of the attack may have been significantly greater than initially thought. It's been revealed this week that it is believed that around 14 million customer records were in fact stolen in the cyber attack, which is roughly double what I think the original estimate was. The next story is NGS Super, which is an investment fund, was the victim of a cyber attack last week, though it was only announced earlier this week. The attack compromised the fund's systems and the data of individuals. Chico Bank in the US suffered a data breach during which a uh, cyber attack uh, dur- during a cyber attack which took place in February although it was only announced this week this is quite typical the cyber attack will happen then there will be a response to it internally media won't be told and it will only be revealed later usually when the problems have been solved the attack against Chico Bank is believed to have been carried out by Black Basta a criminal hacking group Rio Tinto, the mining company, has suffered a cyber attack in Australia with hackers stealing data of both current and former Australian employees. Uh, a Dutch data collection and monitoring firm, uh, the shipping, a Dutch data, a, a Dutch shipping data collection and monitoring firm, which is Royal Dugsvager, was hit by a cyber attack in early March. The detail of the attack has not been revealed but the company was fully operational again by mid-March. This is, I think, the second cyber attack on a shipping organization or an organization which is linked to shipping, and we've covered this previously on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. An interesting couple of linked stories this week. First, it's believed that Capita, which is an outsourcing group which provides services to the National Health Service in the United Kingdom and also to the military, had problems with its computer systems this week. Staff were apparently unable to log into systems and the phone lines were knocked out. While there's no information about whether or not this was a cyber attack or a simple failure of computer systems, this does raise the issue of risk and the outsourcing of public functions, or indeed the outsourcing of functions generally, because this is a big issue in the financial services sector where certain functions are outsourced. Now, that story, Capita, of course, provides services to the National Health Service, as I said. Well, linked to that story is this one, and it's the UK government which has announced a policy paper, the publication of a policy paper, Cybersecurity Strategy for Health and Social Care 2023-2030. to That couldn't be more timely. Links to the press release and the, pod, and the policy paper can be found in the podcast description. Nearing the end now, the European Union Agency for Cybersecurity, ANISA, has published its cybersecurity market analysis of the cloud and an updated version of the cybersecurity market analysis framework. Link can be found in the podcast description. Finally, a couple of positive stories on the cyber front. First, Amnesty International has uncovered a hacking campaign which is believed to be linked to a mercenary spyware company. I wonder which one that could be. The findings were reported to Google's Threat Analysis Group and the threat was neutralised by the issuing of security updates across Android, Chrome and Linux users users who were those believed to be most likely affected by it. 
And the second vaguely positive story on this front is that Microsoft has revealed an open AI function designed to help cyber teams to combat cyber attacks. That's it for episode 52 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me all again with a special in the week and then next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>